Okay, so real quick, just some housekeeping rules. Uh, not rules, but just uh, exhortations. Uh, my uh, hope and my prayer is that God would use uh, this time together to uh, change your life, to transform you, to renew you. I've been praying uh, for you, even with tears, asking that God would do something in your heart uh, that would change your life for all of eternity. Um, I, I, and so this time is sacred. It's special to me. I mean, I work all week long for this moment to declare and proclaim the mysteries of Christ, His excellencies, His glory to us all. And so uh, during this time, it's like 20 minutes, I asked for your full attention. So you put your phones away in your pocket. Uh, if you have anything that would distract you, even if it's a friend who uh, talk and hang out with you, maybe move yourself from that place. Uh, but this time is special. Uh, I believe that God speaks through his word. I, I care about you guys. I want you to hear. So if there's anything distracting you, remove it, uh, get away from it and uh, or her or him. <laughs> it, uh, and I uh, just appreciate that. All right. So how many of you have ever read Okay, how many have read either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? So, okay, so, all right, so we're all familiar here. So if you have then, as you have, uh, uh, then you know that these four accounts, uh, four historical records, uh, they tell us about the life and ministry of Jesus. So in other words, these accounts, these historical records are inspired testimony. They testify and declare to Jesus Christ who he is, what he did, and, and what he's going to do. Uh, they're basically biographies. And, and this year at Risen, uh, we spent most of our time studying the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is located in Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7, uh, which is Matthew's biography. Um, and in that time, uh, you guys with me have learned so much of what Jesus believed, uh, what he taught, how he lived. Uh, so much came from the Sermon on the Mount. But now we're moving on. So we're going to move on from the Sermon on the Mount uh, to look at other parts of Jesus' life and ministry. And more specifically, tonight, if you remember, how many disciples did Jesus have? Twelve disciples. And these 12 men, they were, they were hand-selected, hand-picked by Jesus to spend three years doing ministry until his death. And tonight we're going to look at the historical account of when Jesus called one of the 12 named Matthew. So the very author of this biography. And, and by observing as looking at how Jesus called Matthew, what happened in that call, we're going to learn a lot. But our primary goal is to answer one question. All right, you ready for the question? Who did Jesus come to save? Who did Jesus come to save? That's, that's the question we're seeking to answer tonight. So let's go ahead and read our passage, pray, and dig in. Uh, you guys get your sheets out and read along with me. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that by your grace, according to your great mercy and your great love, that you would lead us to the truth right now, that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to receive your word, to be challenged, to be encouraged, to be saved. So we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 9, uh, we're introduced to this Matthew. Uh, and we learn some really, really important background information about Matthew. So look there with me. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, and there refers to uh, the town of Capernaum, where Jesus just told a paralyzed man who couldn't use his legs, he said, paralyzed man, rise and walk. And he did. And he got up and walked. And so Jesus just left Capernaum doing a amazing, miraculous healing. And it says, as Jesus passed on from there, he called a man, Matt, uh, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. So now we learn two things about this future disciple of Jesus in this moment. One, his name is Matthew. And two, he's a tax collector. Hence, Jesus finds him sitting at the tax booth. Now, now, my question is, why does that matter? What does it matter that he is a tax collector? Well, first, let me give you some information about tax collectors in the ancient world, all right? So stick with me. Who were the so-called tax collectors? Uh, well, if you've ever been on a road trip, uh, then you've traveled on the highway, and you've either paid tolls on the I-Pass, or you stopped at the physical booths, or if you're a criminal like me, you just rode through without paying at all and then forget to pay and then pay fines after. That's how, yeah, so. Well, in Jesus' day, like us, they also had to pay tolls on various roads or uh, uh, seaport entries. You had to pay a toll when you passed. And the individuals who worked at these tax booths were among the group called tax collectors, right? Uh, but unlike our day, their toll system wasn't regulated. Uh, that is, the local government didn't say, hey, this is how much you can charge and no more. It wasn't regulated. Rather, what happened was this. The Roman Empire at the time would sell a tax booth, a location, to the highest bidder. So if you had a lot of money, you could buy a tax booth um, and have the ability to operate it. And therefore, you had the right to charge people however much you wanted. So let's say that while Rome, the empire, only required the tax collector to charge a dollar for each traveler who passes through, to make a profit, the tax collector would charge two dollars. Now, that's not inherently wrong. Uh, the, the collectors were providing a service and they needed to get paid. But, but, instead of imposing a reasonable tax to make a decent living, they would charge ridiculous amounts. They would take advantage of the people to line their own pockets and often the people were disadvantaged and often poor. And so many of them, these, these tax collectors, they were viewed kind of like a, a crooked used car salesman. Uh, they were only trying to make a buck at your expense. But even worse than being a cheat, Jewish people specifically uh, uh, saw these tax collectors that they worked for Rome. 
And Rome was an empire that killed their people, took their land and oppressed them. They had family members who died at the hands of Roman soldiers. It was personal. So when a tax collector like Matthew, who was a Jew, took over a booth, purchased it and started operating it, they thought it was utter betrayal. It was the depiction of a traitor. To put it in our context, imagine if Russia, right, defeated America in war, completely took over our land, and in each city, they put a place, a Russian uh, a political uh, leader or soldiers, and they ruled over us, and they forced us to pay taxes. And then that money, the very money they collected and took from us, went to serve and advance their occupation of our land. And then imagine if Josh uh, decided to go work for him to collect the very taxes that keep us oppressed as he gets rich off taking advantage of us. Sorry, Josh. And on top of even that, the job of a tax collector in Jesus's day required them to come into regular contact with Gentiles. They had to work with anybody and everybody, a bunch of non-Jews, which made them ceremonially unclean to worship in the temple. So that means they couldn't be God-fearing Jews who did their temple duties. So then when we put this all together, the Jews hated, despised, couldn't stand tax collectors. They did not like them at all. Uh, They were the scum of the earth. No good thieves who betrayed not only their people, but God as well. Whenever you see tax collectors, they're always grouped with adulterers and murderers. That's the level they seen tax collectors at. And it's so important that we know this background about tax collectors because it says in verse 9, look there with me again, what does it say? As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He's seen this tax collector, the scum of the earth, and what does he say to him? Follow me. This means out of the thousands and thousands of people, Out of of all the carpenters and blacksmiths and teachers and farmers and fishermen, out of everyone, Jesus chose a tax collector to be one of his 12 disciples. One who was invited to his inner circle. Remember, these disciples would spend years with Jesus. Uh, They would travel hundreds of miles together on foot. Uh, They would eat countless meals. They would learn directly at his feet and he would interpret mysteries for them, parables. They would witness and then participate in unbelievable miracles like paralyzed men walking. And he gave that special, unique calling to a tax collector. It's unbelievable. Now, Now, note, when Jesus stops at that tax booth, and, and he speaks to Matthew. What does he say? Does he say, hey, Matthew, will you please come follow me? Or, oh, hey, Matthew, whenever you're ready, like whenever you want to, you know, would you come follow me? No, he doesn't ask. He commands Matthew and he says, follow me. In other words, discipleship for Christ wasn't optional. It was a command. It is a command upon us. And and when we think about that word follow, 
Think about that word follow. It's critical because it sheds light on what it means to be a disciple. Uh, so a few years ago, I went snowmobiling in the mountains of Colorado. I mean, it was gorgeous, beautiful vistas. Uh, it was, it was, the scenery was incredible. I mean, look at me, I was having fun, right? No, I was scared out of my mind snowmobiling. I mean, you could literally die so easily. I was traveling one time uh, and I'm just cruising along and next thing you know, right before me is like a 10 foot drop into a ravine that if I didn't see, I would have entered and been stuck. And that was all over the place and they were having fun. I was like, what in the world? I, I got off, I was riding on the side of a mountain and like it just dropped off and as it dropped off, I was kind of like this and the windshield went into my throat. I was just scared. I was just like, now, okay, so I was scared of my mind and uh, so we weren't riding nice trails. We were in the mountains, all right? We were in the mountains, uh, boondocking as they call it, dick, uh, dipping and diving through trees and it was just, it was really cool in some ways. Uh, and within the first hour of the trip, okay, we came, I think it was called like Mount Baldy or something. We came to this super steep hill. I mean, it was like insanely steep. And I'm climbing up and it's still an hour in. So I'm like, you know, have some confidence still. And I'm like, I'm going up, I'm going up and going up. And then, you know, it does this kind of thing. And when a 400, 500 pound machine does that on a hill like that, you know what happens? It rolls and you almost die. It was like the matrix. I was like, it, like I started going over like, oh no, I'm really going to roll this thing. I start, it, go, it, goes, it goes over me and I see it flipping over my head because once you get on the snow, you just go straight down to like your chest. That's how deep it is. So I, I'm falling off. I go straight down to my chest and it's rolling over my head. It was insane. Uh, and that was within the first hour. Like what were the, I was an amateur and they're taking me to do stuff like this. I'm still upset. Uh, like, I just, so within that first hour, I realized snowmobiling in the mountains was not for me. I'll take the basketball, all right, with the weights on the ground. Uh, but I bring up my trip because one of the distinct memories I have was how closely I had to follow my riding partners. Like I was following them so closely for like for my life because if I didn't, I'd get lost. Remember, there's like these ravines that you could fall into um, and I didn't know where I was. We didn't have walkie talkies or any cell service. So if you didn't follow close enough to your riding buddies, uh, you could get in some real trouble. And so I followed like every ascent and every descent and every turn and acceleration. I imitated them at every level to the best of my ability. And that's why I think that word follow, follow is such a good word to describe what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, in the same way I followed every move of my riding buddies, to be a disciple is to follow Jesus, to talk how he talks, love how he loves, to imitate his character, his conduct. To, it's, it's not, so discipleship then isn't this one and done decision. It's not you prayed that prayer, believed it, uh, Jesus died and rose again. It's following him closely, imitating his life taking on his values and character and conduct. Uh, and, and this is much different then, as you can see, than following something, somebody on social media, right? Instagram or something. Social media followers are spectators. They're, they're onlookers. They're observers. And Jesus doesn't want uh, uh, clickers. He wants followers. And, and you know what's amazing about Matthew's story? 
Look at verse 9. After Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. And remember, he just met Matthew <laughs> for the first time. How does Matt respond? And he rose and followed him. And listen, Matthew didn't know much about Jesus, right? Uh, he heard about the miracles. He heard about the great teaching. I mean, no one could get away from that. Everybody's talking about that. But at this point, Matthew did not have all his questions answered. Yet he chose to follow Jesus anyways. And, and, and it was in the following, it was in the watching and imitating Jesus where Matthew got his doubts answered, not before the following. So, so I think that teaches us, students, that we don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to have all the evidence for Jesus' death and resurrection. What he calls us to is to take the first step of faith. To respond to the call to follow him. And as he did for Matthew, he will vindicate it for you. That he is real, that he is sovereign, that he is good, that he's worthy. Now, as a tax collector, uh, Matthew, I mean, he was rolling in the dough. He was rich, probably. He's wealthy. So to, to leave a post like that, it meant sacrificing, giving up, a really good, well-paying position. And once he left, it's not like he could return. That position was going to be taken. And even more, if he needed a different job, who was going to hire this former tax collector that no one likes? And it wasn't just Jewish people. No one liked the, IR, uh, the tax collectors just like we don't like the IRS. So when Matthew got up from that tax booth and he left to follow Jesus, he was putting all his cards on the table. He had no backup plan. He had no plan B. It was Jesus or bust. He had to open up his hands and let go of his grip on his temporary life and his riches and wealth and position and all that he knew to grab hold of the living God in Christ. He had to let go to grab hold. And students, it's the same for us. To, to follow Jesus, we're gonna have to let some stuff go. You're going to have to let go of some friendships, maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Actually, not maybe. You're probably, it's the boyfriend or girlfriend. It's the problem, probably. You're going to have to let go of partying and drunkenness. You're going to have to tear out some eyes and cut off some hands. And so, brothers and sisters, I want you to think about what are you holding on to? What in this world that's temporary and fleeting, what person are you holding on to that is not faithful and has allegiance and loyalty like the Lord of heaven and earth, like Jesus? What are you holding on to that's going to perish one day and never be here again? What are you holding on to that's not letting you follow Christ? What are you holding on to? What must you leave? <coughs> now, after Matthew makes this huge, <laughs> radical change in his life, after he decides to give up everything and follow this Jesus, what does he do next? He tells his friends, of course. He tells his friends. Look at verse 10. 
It says, as, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, so we're switching scenes now. We're going from Jesus meeting Matthew for the first time to a dinner party, a get together, a feast at someone's house. And it says, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, like the authors like Matthew, like, behold, look, who's there? Who's there with them? Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. In the book of Luke, another gospel account, we have this same scene recorded uh, and, and we're told that it's in fact Matthew's house. It's Matt's house. And that he invited all the guests. Hence, that's why there's nothing but tax collectors and sinners in the presence and present there attending. These are Matthew's people. So the first thing Matt did when he started to follow Christ is invite his friends to meet Jesus. It's the first thing he did. But do we? Is that our first instinct with our friends? To, to tell them about Jesus, to have a spiritual conversation, to talk about God with them? Do you invite them to know Christ? Do you, do you tell them about our gathering, right? That we're here together to hear the truth about Jesus. Do you, do you invite them? Matt told his friends. And guess what? They were tax collectors and sinners. They were unbelievers. Not just Christian friends. So far then, what we have in this scene is a large gathering of Matthew's tax collector sinner friends all spending time with Jesus and his disciples. They're kicking it, eating, talking, fellowshipping. And it says in verse 11, look there with me. And when the Pharisees saw this, when they saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And you see the emphasis I put on tax collectors and sinners? Tax collectors and sinners. That's how it is in the original language. It's like front loaded. It's like, how could you? These religious leaders and teachers of the people, these Pharisees, right? They're, they're strict followers of Jewish law and tradition. And somehow they see this scene taking place and they just can't believe their eyes. How is Jesus eating with them? And to fully appreciate their response and what's going on in this scene, we need to know that in the ancient world, especially among Jewish people, right, among the Hebrew people, uh, sharing a meal with someone implied more than just a, a friendly connection as it does today. So it was more than like going to Culver's with a group of your buddies and like you don't like three or four of them, but you go anyway, you know, or Buffalo Wild Wings, wherever you go. Rather, when you shared a meal with a group, in your home, it communicated, it was to say, I accept you, I welcome you, I embrace you, you can be in my circle. And so that's why the Pharisees, they wouldn't be caught dead. They wouldn't be caught dead in the home of a tax collector or a sinner. In fact, the Pharisees, they took great pride in avoiding contact with such unsavory folks or outsiders, and they thought that this separation was a sign of their own godliness and purity. So they're dumbfounded to find Jesus kicking back at a feast with these unruly, worthless folks, and yet there Jesus is. And apparently, this isn't the only occasion 
that Jesus spends time with sinners and tax collectors. In Luke 15, 1, I got that cross-reference on your sheet. It says, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. They were seeking Jesus out, tax collectors and sinners. Later in Matthew eleven nineteen, listen to what Jesus' accusers, his haters, the people that didn't like them and wanted to bring disrepute on his name, they say, look at him. Look at this Jesus. He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was their accusation. So, so contrary to what we might expect, it wasn't the religious people, the synagogue church attending people who sought Jesus out. It was the outcast, the criminals, the shady folks, the people nobody liked. And so we have to ask, and this is what is so cool. We have to ask, what kind of person was this holy, sinless Tell you, take out your eye, cut off your hand type of man that sinners and tax collectors still wanted to be by him. They still were drawing near to him. They still wanted to be near the holy Messiah, even though he never compromised. Not the people who claimed to have it all together. They didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Well, I think we find our answer to that question in Jesus' response to the Pharisees. So he responds to them in two parts. Jesus begins in verse 12. Uh, look there with me. But when he heard it, so here's what they're saying. He said, those who are well, healthy, strong, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. See, while the Pharisees quarantined, and, and isolated themselves from the tax collectors and sinners. On the contrary, Jesus pressed in. He got closer to them. Uh, so he viewed himself and his disciples more like the doctors and nurses who didn't stay home in the pandemic. But they went to work and they cared for the sick and dying at their own expense. That's the way of a disciple. That's the way of Jesus. He doesn't run away from us because we're messed up. He doesn't abandon us because we're sick with sin and guilt, because we're stuck in shame and addiction or, or all sorts of sinful desires. He comes to get us. He doesn't run away from messy, nasty, dirty people. That's why tax collectors and sinners were drawn to him. He sought them out. Now, that's part of his answer. The second part is in verse 13. So look there with me. Jesus says, go and learn what this means. Talking to the Pharisees. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So this statement, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, uh, that's a quote. Uh, that comes from the book of Hosea in the Older Testament. Uh, so then Jesus, he, he's giving these religious leaders a homework assignment. Uh, and again, remember the Pharisees were dedicated students of the Bible. I mean, they're the teachers and scholars of the day. And yet Jesus says, go and study what God means when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So I went and did their homework, right? I went and did their homework assignment. 
And the basic takeaway from Hosea 6, 6 is this. God wants us to do more than sacrifice or rituals or read our Bibles, pray and attend church. The Pharisees, in fact, were the goats. They were the greatest of all time at religious stuff. But yet their hearts were far from God. So because God desires not just sacrifice, so not just doing religious stuff, but mercy. That is, God wants our hearts to be so changed and so filled with compassion and love for the lost that we give our time and our energy to help the broken, the outcast, the hurting. He wants us to touch the untouchables. He wants to be his disciples, to be like him. Now, in the second half of verse 13, we finally come to our answer of our original question. Who did Jesus come to save? Start reading again verse 13. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Students, if you've been with us, you know, during this time and the Sermon on the Mount, then you know that without reservation, without compromise, without softening one holy standard, Jesus taught us the will of God for our lives. He taught us the pure truth. He taught us to pursue a true and genuine inner righteousness, a real and honest life with God. And it's true by God's grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit, our lives will grow in greater conformity uh, to the life and character of Jesus. But listen, we don't start that way. We don't start that way. We start like Matthew. A tax collector. Last week, I'm upstairs and I'm getting some of the stuff out for the balls, uh, for the game, you know, stuff. And I'm starting to shed tears. Because <laughs> I couldn't believe that me, Robert Lee, studied and memorized the Sermon on the Mount. And I didn't just know it here, it's in my heart. I try to live my life by every day. Me, Robert Lee, drug dealer, drug addict, promiscuous, no good, selfish, wanted nothing in this life but sin. Me, actually now living out the truth of God. What? This is crazy. So listen. If you're still getting drunk and high, if you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, if you're self-righteous and prideful, if you're angry and filled with bitterness and resentment in your heart, if you're faking your faith to keep your parents happy, if you are a tax collector and sinner, Jesus came for you. 
He, he, he left the glory of heaven where burning angels worshipped him. Holy, holy, holy. He left glory and all of its splendor. He took on frail human flesh and he was crucified on a cross, buried, and he rose again for you. And he's coming back and he's going to establish a kingdom that will last forever. And he's going to give it to you. If you're a tax collector and a sinner, Jesus came to save you, not the righteous. There are none. Have you looked around? There are no righteous. No, not one. So let me assure you, you are not too far gone. I am the living example of that. Paul the Apostle is the example of that. Matthew the tax collector is the example of that. God can still save you. But you must answer the call. You got to answer the call. You got to leave everything. To follow him. Jesus told Matthew, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And I promise you, it'll be worth it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, great, good, mighty God in heaven. Eternal one, ancient of days, immeasurable wisdom and power and glory. You chose to save us. And you promise that when we turn to follow you, you will change us. You will renew us. You will put your truth in our hearts and give us a new character. Day in and day out as we seek to follow you. And so, Father, I just pray for help. We lean on you now. We know apart from you we can do nothing. That this is not something that is our own strength that we can pull off. So, Father, I pray that we'd be encouraged, we'd be strengthened, and that we would draw near to Jesus as tax collectors and sinners. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.